Welcome to another episode of Tools, Talents, and Techniques. I'm your host, Dustin Sutton, and today our guest is Austin Troy Fitzpatrick. He's a university professor at the University of San Diego's Kroc School of Peace Studies, and Austin's expertise extends across a range of disciplines from politics to culture, technology, social change. He's a prolific writer, and his work has been featured in renowned publications like Slate, uh, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, and many more. And his contributions, he spans books. Um, I'm going to name four of the books that I know of. We got The Good Drone, Wicked Problems, uh, From Human Trafficking to Human Rights, What Slaveholders Think, How Contemporary Perpetrators Rationalize What They Do. Um, and he's been featured in many other publications. But Austin's insights into the the intricate interplay of politics, culture, and technology make for a, a fascinating conversation. And we've had plenty of conversations before, so I'm really excited about having this this conversation today. Um, but in addition to some of his scholarly pursuits, he's made appearances on major television networks, including the BBC, NBC, Fox News, where he shared his insights. So. Without any further ado, here he is, Mr. Austin Troy Fitzpatrick. Hello, Austin. Hey, how's it going? I'm so happy how to be that, doing this. How, how was that intro? Did I did I cover enough? That was awesome. I, you made me sound so good. I really hope this. We we got to swing for the fences now. We got to swing for the fences. <laughs> hey, it's it's all you. But for uh, for any for the listeners and people that may not be aware of you and your work, could you just, in your own words, say who you are and what you do? Yeah, I mean, so you got you got the you got the parts right that I would usually rattle off. So I'm a professor, and what I do is teach classes, and you know, do research and write books, and then try my best to translate some of what I find out into the world. Um, I think there's a couple of different modes for professors. We can sort of. Uh, drill in and drill down and turn in to the academy and into the sort of really important questions that we chase uh, in laboratories or help students unpack in the classroom. There's also a second, I I think, uh, I don't want to say calling, maybe that gets us into like deep stuff too fast. But I think that people who live, work and teach at universities also have a public duty to uh, to be to, I don't know to provide a public service, so not just to provide private services to people who can pay for them, so that they can get you know elite credentials, so that they get passed along some sort of you know I don't know elite supply chain, but also to I mean, that that stuff does happen. I mean that's what pays a lot of bills in a lot of places, but also for the knowledge that we generate to make its way out to the world. So I guess in the list of things you just described, my interests have been not only to do what I hope is high quality work, but to do it in such a way that it's accessible to folks who are not in the academy. And it sort of spends in a couple of directions. It invests in the circulation of new ideas in the, you know, in the knowledge ecology and ecosystem that I live in, but then also we push this stuff out into the public square. So social movements or public policymakers or citizens or residents can use this stuff to make the world a better place. And I guess that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say, I know that sounded like a lot and selling one thing. Uh, universities are a public are a public good and I want to be part of that. And then the second thing is that a lot of what you said, you sort of you said here, you know, here are four books and they all sound really, really different. And I have taken the real honor it is to be at a university as an opportunity to do whatever the heck I want to. And, you know, there's one way of sort of saying, I'm going to become renowned in X and then really write five books on X. And I have not, that's probably a smart path. I've not taken the smart path. I've taken the, well, what interests me? Which is why you and I have always had great conversations because the conversation can go from culture to politics, to technology, to what's happening at the international stage, what's happening down the street. And all of that stuff really excites me and makes me feel like I'm able to use my brain in fun and fresh ways uh, to chase things down if I find them interesting. And that has led perhaps unwisely. We can talk about career stuff too in this conversation, but I don't know if that served me well as a career strategy because it means I'm a jack of all trade and a master of none. And then the question is, okay, so, you know, what does that mean for my career? But it sure as heck has made for an enjoyable last, I've been doing this for about 10 years, made for a really enjoyable last decade. So let's start with that deep stuff that you said about the calling. And I think we'll, we'll get there, but let's talk about your origin story. 
everything that you said is spot on and how you're feeling. And I think it's, it's really interesting how um, re- reflective you are on your path and your journey. And I think there's a lot of things that we can, we can glean from that, but let's talk about your origin story. How, what did you like, where did you grow up and what did you think that you were going to be doing when you, when you grew up? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I I feel like, I don't know. I'm I'm like middle-aged now. And when I was younger and I had to narrative, I think that our identities are like bundles of narratives. You know, we can retool these narratives. We can find new strands and something that happened to us in the past and say, oh, you know what? I've always been interested in Y or X. And we can sort of, um, you know, rejigger our identities based on different stories we tell. And your question is a super duper solid one because over the years, as I've gotten older, I've pushed my, the, I don't know, the threads I draw on to describe my identity back further and further and further. So if you'd asked me this when I was 25, I would have talked about something that happened to me when I was 21. And when I was like in my 30s, I would say, well, you know, what really came out of this thing that happened to me in my late teens. And now I'm, you know, and now I'm like, you know what this is really about? This is really about my childhood, you know? So it's funny because as I've gone further along, I, I, I start telling stories about my parents and I start telling stories about my grandparents and things I learned from them that I, and I don't know, maybe that's just like you get older and you're like, there's got to be some meaning to this and we, or we run out of little strands to weave from our own lives. So we look to other places. I don't know. But it's a super duper good question, and it's one I've been thinking about lately. So I'm the product of a of weird parents. Um, so my dad is a sort of, you know, my dad went to when he was a hippie. His dad went to college, so he and he was a sort of middle class, um, middle America. Um, Irish American Irish Catholic guy who worked for uh, you know a major multi you know it was a ma- major corporation in America and was head of sales and you know played golf at his golf club and did all of this stuff that's pretty uh, arch typical kind of waspy kind of stuff he, he wasn't waspy but you know that kind of thing. And then my dad, this was the sixties. My dad was a hippie and my dad was like, I'm out of here. So my dad, you know, like split from, from, you know, the Catholic school that he was at and went and enrolled himself in a, in the public high school down the, down the road. He ran away, drove, drove his motorcycle to Berkeley and, you know, was there, you know, in 68. And then he got sick of Berkeley. So he went to Europe and then he got tired of Europe and he went to, you know, Iran and to, you know, he was, he was sort of all over in India and at the same time, my dad was doing like hippie life. My mom was living in Nairobi in a circus tent as a missionary's daughter. And so my mom is just like living this completely other life. My dad's, you know, smuggling hash back to the States. And my mom is a, uh, you know, I'm telling their story. They're going to listen to this and go, hope oh, <laughs> um, so I should get to like an NDA or something. I don't know. So, um, so so they had these like completely different lives. You know, my mom living on a, a like a kind of a small farm in Pennsylvania. My dad, the kid of like, you know, country club life. And they married in the 70s, this wackadoodle, you know, when post-war moment in America in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And, uh, and I'm the product of that. So as I've gone on in life, I'm like, why am I interested? In- oh, and they homeschooled me. That's the third thing. They homeschooled me. And so I never had a bet, like knowledge never got broken up by bells. I never had to point my chair to the front of the room. I never had to like listen to somebody tell me how to think. I never had subjects clearly disaggregated by walking from one classroom to another. And did All they this... did they did they ever tell you specifically why they decided to homeschool? Yeah, this? they were they were they they out of that you know that hippie process I just described emerged from all of that as religious conservatives in this sort of like evangelical, you know, sort of evangelical mode. And we moved from Michigan to Tennessee and they had like religious commitments that were that this was in line with their religious commitments. It was also, you know, in line with a lot of their hippie commitments, if you sort of track that story. But uh, but the motive, I think, was was really was religious. And so that education I got was a little squirrely because it came out of that world. But what it did to my brain is it didn't discipline my brain, didn't tell my brain where the edges were, which has been a lot of fun. Some of the consequences are now that, you know, I'm mid-career. And if you wanted to hire me to do that one great thing that I've written 10 books about, you know, I haven't done it. So it's 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 made me, I think, um, it's made me pretty happy with my mind. I wasn't for a long time. And the reason I've, I keep coming back to this, like, well, I'm answering this question at middle age 
is maybe 20 years ago, if you'd asked me this, I would have thought that I was underserved by that entire experience, that I was insufficiently mainstream. I've been insufficiently acculturated to the rules of the game. Uh, I had sort of been raised by a hippie in a circus tent Mennonite. Like, what the heck? What do you, you know, then I've had to piece <laughs> all of my professional life out of whatever that is, right? And so, and so I would have been a little bit more upset by that maybe 10 or 15 years ago as I was trying to get my professional legs under me. But now that I've got my professional legs under me and I'm, you know, I'm a tenured professor, which in the, in the university world means that you can't be fired. I now have this sense of, okay, so I've gotten the, you know, I've, I've made it to the level in my, in my little world where you have freedom, you have freedom of motion. And I got here by exercising a kind of freedom of motion that I learned or inherited from my parents. And I've shifted in my, some probably a lot more critical if we'd had this conversation 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, oh, I didn't get to go to the right colleges or I wasn't trained in the right ways or there were no bells, you know, no bells between the classes. And so everything is mush in my mind. And uh, you could think, no, well, maybe I have a growth mindset. So I've turned that challenge into an opportunity. Maybe that's true, uh, but I'm increasingly appreciative of that approach to to thinking and to opportunities. It's made me hungry and, um, and synthetic, able to see sort of how things can synthesize that might be, uh, others might not see, which is why I have a book called What Slaveholders Think. Nobody wants to know what they think. Well, I do. Um, I wrote a book called mm. Drones for Good. Everybody thinks drones are bad. Well, I, you know, so it's just, you know, it's give me a little contrarian streak as well. So, well, one thing I, I find extremely interesting about your story and your journey and I did not know about that. So I, I definitely want to dive deeper on that because this a big part of the the tools, talents, and techniques are those things that when you're looking back on your experience and your journey, the things that you thought were things that were holding you back, the tools that you had to figure out and use in your life ended up being part of your strength. And I think that's really important for people to realize that because that gets you out of that that mode, that mindset of victimhood to be like, oh, wow, actually, because I can think of things differently, I can go into just about any situation and, you know, like start to actually look at it differently. And I love what you said about growing up and not knowing where the edges are. Like, I, I just think that's that's a remarkable statement. Yeah, I feel like this is this is increasingly... Uh... I don't know. I feel like there's, I have two different approaches to this. And one is that we have increased tools in culture, uh, just kind of popular culture and the way we, you know, sort of the, the ideas that flow through the world that we live in uh, or the world that you and I are living in right now, not the whole world, which is that, you know, whatever it is that happened in the past is, is something that we can learn from and grow from. And that, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or cracks are how the light gets in or, you know, all these, all of this different language for how to harness things that we don't, um, I don't know, we, in an earlier era, one would have experienced regret or shame or frustration or anger or bitterness over. And so I feel like there's a large restructuring of uh, those things aren't those things aren't bad. Those things are maybe regrettable, but how do we turn those things into opportunities for learning? That's a whole bunch of, I don't know what to call it. My kids call it growth mindset, but that is a whole bunch of resilience that I think is really, really positive. And now I'm going to say a second thing. As a social movement scholar, and so like all, I do all these wackadoodle projects, but what holds them all together is an interest in collective action. When do people get together on purpose in order to change the status quo into something that's a bit different? So I have a lot of projects about how, now that are about how do people imagine new and different things that they might organize around. But all of my projects are basically some kind of like collective action social movement puzzles. And in that world or that sort of area of interest of mine has led me to be deeply curious about those moments when people say that sucked, that should not have happened. And we need to change that system. So, you know, you and I can see each other and the listeners can't, but I'm like using my hands to like kind of go, I don't know which one of those I, I, I love more. I love this resilience, but if there's resilience downplays our ability to say the system is messed up and we need to ask questions about why these things happen so that we can change systems. So these things don't happen again, then 
we're, we've missed opportunities for, for the kind of social change that I've invested a lot of my life in figuring out how I can support and promote. So what, like, how does that, what does that all mean? That means that we have increased tools for saying, you know what, what doesn't hurt, what, what doesn't break you makes you stronger. But I, I want, yes. And I want to also hold a place for saying like, wait, why were things, why do, why do we live in societies where it is only some kind of people that are systematically exposed to getting broken and that are systematically mm-hmm. the ones that have to, or systemically the ones that have to then experience a process of like healing and repair and turning that into something that, that is, you know, having, having a story about, you know, cracks or how the lights like gets in. So it, I love it at the individual level. And then I challenge it at the systems level, at the systems level. I'm like, yeah, okay, but let's, how about we have a world where we don't have to tell ourselves those stories because our systems protect people from having these things happen to them. Um, and so I'm, I'm, there's a tension there in, in my mind, but. Well, yeah. And that's something I don't think I've ever really put verbiage on because that's really interesting. So, so yes, it's good to be resilient and be fine. But at some point, when is, when do you stop medicating? When do you stop putting a bandaid on it and like, Hey, no, like, yes, I can take it, but I shouldn't have to take it anymore. And when does that happen? Yeah, I've never articulated that before, but this, but, but, uh, so, th- so you and I do, we're doing this live, live folks. No, um, this is great. This is how the magic happens. I, love- man. I never thought of that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, but this is the, this is the challenge. And so let's just say that you and I are being asked to consult for a group of people who are having some truly terrible things happen to them because they lack access to formal and informal power. They don't have a, a lot of followers on social media platforms and they don't, vote or not commonly seen as being a powerful constituency or they don't have citizenship rights. And then they're just consistently getting pushed around by, you know, somebody who has more power than them. And then do we tell them, don't like, listen, we're going to go through a guided exercise that's going to help you turn this into a learning opportunity for you in terms of personal strength, resilience, and growth. That's not a bad move, but there's an additional move that says, let's think about how we can concentrate those let that frustration into something that looks like formal or informal power in order to create pressure tactics to get the powerful to reconsider the larger systems that are actually leading to this kind of thing happening over and over and over again and it's like a, it's like a twofer i'm just repeating myself now but it's a really like a twofer and if we and if, and if we don't have the former then then injustice let's just say can just consistently lead to bitterness and frustration in the sense of uh, your term earlier was victimhood um and rather than agency and empowerment right but somehow yeah. turning that like turning that uh, uh like negative experiences into a learning opportunity for how we can do things differently uh is is itself empowering i think anyway. uh, so this so when when you're doing your research and whether it be for the books or or your your presentation for for class or anything where do you source most of your I won't say where your source material but where's your inspiration like where do you go we talked about the technology and the social change where are you getting most of the information that's coming through as as you called it the wackadoodle which I don't think they are I mean I think this is this is like important big stuff but like where what what's what's going into this filter it's a, so okay. So that's so I'm going to answer it in two ways. One will probably not be very. The first one will not be very relevant to most listeners. We all live in pretty different um, sort of professional domains that have their own rules. And the professional domain that I live in, higher education and knowledge production, has its own rules. So, for example, listeners can't see us, but like I've got I'm surrounded by books. There's books all over behind me. A one of the core commitments well, will. that this will this, real oh, quick. This will also be on YouTube and some clips. Oh, so I so. should stop picking. I should stop picking my nose. Okay, good, good, good to know. <laughs> um, so one of the, so one of the, um, yeah. So here's books. So for this, this is extra. You go to YouTube to get X premium content. There you um, go. So so we are obligated. I'm obligated to contribute and, and want and very much want to contribute to dialogues that happen over time independent of individuals at the level of academic disciplines and schools of thought so i write books that i hope will outlive me whose ideas will outlive me and what i'm trying to do is add a stitch or a strand into like a larger tapestry of knowledge that is a commitment that's pretty bespoke or unique to higher ed to academics like you know to academics 
And it's an obligation we have that most other folks don't have. There's this sort of other, not, it's not the university I work at. It's to this like empire or global network of knowledge that I'm contributing these books to. I've also mentioned a second thing that I'm interested in committed to um, sort of serving the, you know, the public and these things, these ideas should serve the public. So one of the places I'm looking for ideas is in the books behind me. And I'm asking who's like, like, you know, where's there a gap? If there's 10 books on a shelf, is, should there be an 11th book there that says one, three, five, and seven are onto something, you know, the primes are onto something, or should there be a book that says, you know what, all of these, none of these books are talking about the right thing, or they're all talking about the right thing in the wrong way. And when academics make those sorts of contributions, they are advancing knowledge. The problem is, if you say, is there an 11th book, or they're all saying the right thing in the wrong way, like nobody really cares. That's why we have to do this translation workout, because that's just boring. Half of the half of the books behind me are actually pretty boring. Most of the work I do might be boring. I hope it, I you know try for it not to be. But making that stitch in the larger tapestry of knowledge is uh, is a really specialist thing. So the first answer is I'm always like reading the specialist literature, right? But I'm also out there read you know listening to podcasts. I'm reading blogs. I'm reading the newspaper. Um, I read the Economist religiously uh, for like a macro sort of macro economic view of things. And then I'm also talking to and listening to people. And then I don't know what our gut is. I actually don't know. I'm re- doing a whole bunch of reading right now about what that actually is. But I like listen to my gut or I listen to my mind. I will sometimes load things into my mind the night before that I want to think about on the next day. And I'll give tasks to my mind, like we're two different entities. And so I task my mind, like I task AI or, you know, chat GPT with something. I'll say, hey, go think about this. And I'll fall asleep and I'll wake up the next morning and then kind of scrounge around in the backyard in my brain, just making that part up and see if like, you know, the the universe or I have provided myself with anything. I don't know how the heck that works. That's just kind of like mystery sauce stuff. But I'll actually talk to me myself out loud. I'll, li- I'll give my, my brain things and it, my brain might come back to me. Um, I listen to podcasts. I read The Economist and I'm and I'm always and I'm always talking to and listening to people. I ask people what they think. I ask myself what I think. And sometimes when I answer, I say things I didn't know before and I learn for myself, which is kind of weird. So specialist literature, a lot of stuff folks uh, who are listeners are already aware of and know about, you know, read the New York Times, The Economist, et cetera, um, people, and weirdly enough, my own, my own self. And I'm part of an artist collective. So I'm also like out there talking to and listening to artists who are doing things that are, I have a couple of other side projects maybe we talk about that are just like really different and not anything that I just said just now. Well, so I think it's, what's interesting for me is like not only like where you get the information, but how you process it and you alluded to it, like how it all comes together. Is there I have two questions here? When you're listening or um, ingesting this information, whether books, do you think, are you going into it with a critical mind or with a contrarian perspective? Or do you have any type of perspective going in or oh. are you just... I mean, maybe that that's a little that's a little extra second of a question. question. Can we just can, you got a second question too? Oh, am I ready for that one? <laughs> well, no, I just I just wonder because like since you're when you mentioned the things of is there something missing between books one, three, five, seven, like those type of things? Are you looking for that when you're going into it? Uh, I mean, is is it something that you realize of yourself of how you process information? Yeah. So I probably, yeah. So this is a really great question. Um, there's a bunch of different ways this happens and I'm going to go, I'm going to just go really briefly on this because this is really kind of academic insidery stuff that perhaps most listeners, if you're interested, email me and we can talk about it. (laughs) But yeah, so the, there's the, like getting started in your career, you don't want to like write a book that none of your peers know how it fits. Like peer review in in academia is an important thing. And it's where not just I said it, but I wrote it, I researched it. You don't know who I am and I don't know who you are. And you reviewed everything. And you're like, yeah, that pretty much stands up. It's like a blind audit. And that blind audit is the is the industry standard in my in my industry for ensuring that the knowledge that gets published is not because you and I are buddies but because this work, it stands up under like an external double blind audit. And so that's sort of the gold standard. And so then you're, you know, you're getting somebody else coming in and saying, yeah, this, this stands up. And you got to do a lot of that earlier on in your career. The, the farther on I've gone now that I have the safety of tenure, 
um, which which just means like you can imagine a mid partner or whatever across industries. It just means that there's some additional security to, to practice a little bit more creativity. And with that, so I'm writing a new book right now that I sat down and I didn't go read the literature. I just sat down and wrote the book. And then I, here, I'm going to go grab something. And then I went and I read a whole bunch of articles. So if you're bonus round on YouTube, you can see there's a bunch of like academic articles that all have little post-it notes. And as I read those, I was like, yep, okay, that hunch was, that hunch was confirmed. Okay, yep, I was right about that. Oh, I didn't know about that. I need to be sure to add it. And so what I've actually done is sat, you know, sat down and actually wrote most of the book with a colleague of mine and then went and looked at the literature as opposed to reading all 10 books and then asking myself what's missing. I asked, what do I have to say? And then I wrote it down. And those are two very different models. Uh, and, there is, and there are risks and risks and rewards differently to those two models. Oh, okay. Well, hold on. Let's, I, I want to go deeper in this because first of all, congratulations on tenure. Um, do you, so actually, how do I even say it? Did you achieve tenure? Were you granted tenure? You earned tenure? How do you, how do you look Uh, at it? Yeah, I would say earned because I believe, I think like you, I think we share a philosophy that, um, a lot of achievements are unlocked by hard work and as opposed to was granted, which makes it seem like there's somebody else who has the power. I would like to say I earned it, but, but people use different terms all the time, but I like the term you just said for the reason, for reasons that are pretty philosophical, actually. Well, you got it. Congratulations. Did you realize going into this that you would have this, let's call it freedom of Like, did you, did you say like, when I get tenure, I'm going to think of things differently. I'm going to take the lid off. I'm going to do this. Or was it just something that you realized once you were there, like, Oh, I could just do it differently this time. Um, I am stylizing the difference between pre and post tenure in a general way, how it, in the way it works for most people. I, I did what I'm doing now the whole time. I did things that were, I don't want to say ill-advised, but I have done it my way. <laughs> the outside, of the, outside of the box, perhaps? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit like, uh, oh, I was born on a trout farm. I didn't mention that, you know, but like, my, <laughs> you know, like my dad's smuggling hash. My mom's in a circus tent. I was born on a trout farm. Like what kind of knowledge production system are you going to get out of that? You're going to get somebody who's like, uh, I remember the first time, I remember the first time <laughs> I showed up at USD at the University of San Diego where I work. And I, I said something, I forget what I said. I just made a comment and the person next to me said, oh, don't say that, you'll get fired. And then I said, well, then I don't belong here. <laughs> if I can't say that, then I don't, be- it wasn't an authority figure. It was like another junior professor, a junior faculty at risk, you know, like no tenure, no safety, right? And USD is a great employer. It was not about them. It was just the, the kind of fear that person came into the space with. And so it was not an authority in the front of the room said, you can't do this. And then the other person said, did you not hear the teacher? That wasn't it at all. Nobody had said anything. And I just said, well, I don't, here's what I think. And then I was shushed by a peer who said, they didn't say this, but don't say what you really think, or there might be a consequence. And rather than my response being, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do or, oh, I'll shut up. I said, well, then if I continue to behave this way, and I do not, and, and, and there are repercussions, then this might not be a good match. And since higher education has so few spots, and this is such a competitive little environment, people are fearful, I think, of stepping into, um, and I don't mean at USD, I mean in higher, in higher ed, are, are fearful of stepping into the kind of experimentation and creativity that got them into this job in the first place. We do not make a lot of money. We put up with all kinds of bureaucratic, you know, like mumbo jumbo and students aren't always super easy to work with. And so what do like, why do we do all of that? We do all of that so we can have a life of the mind and so that we can chase ideas across fences, like the little rabbits that we just chase. And there's a fence that says, this is political, you know, political science. And then you run through political science, you're running through economics and you're running through, you know, physics. And all of a sudden you catch the rabbit and somebody's like, you don't belong here. And you're like, but I got the rabbit. Like, I'm just making that silly thing up. But why else would you get underpaid and work in a 400 year old institution? Then if you want to chase ideas around. And so the idea that sitting there, I was told, oh, don't say what you really think. I was like, well, that's what this whole thing is about. So from the flipping get-go, I have, without without 
doing anything unethical and without breaking relationships with people and without violating policies or procedures at the university have like played to the whistle and done what I want. And I'm, and I'm, I've been, um, uh, I have a, like, I'm a, I'm a cis white dude. So a certain amount of privilege that's like, that's like, uh, is wind in, you know, sort of unearned wind in my sails. But a lot of what I have done is not for those reasons. It's because this is a place where you can try things out, but because people are so afraid of not making tenure or so afraid of that 11th book slipping to the wrong shelf, people don't take risks. And this is a, maybe, and this is a challenge I think all over the world. Yeah, I'll stop there because I really care. I care a lot about this. If this is a place where people experience a calling and they want to be, serve the public and they want to serve um, larger networks of ideas in a way that outlives and outlasts them, then man, swing for the fences, play to the whistle, push the envelope. I don't know why else one would go and earn what I earn um, and not be having a whole lot of fun because yeah. it's not a lot of money. You know, we're in it for something else. <laughs> Well, I mean, even outside, I would say this calls back to what you said about your upbringing and not knowing where the edges were and not knowing where the bells are. And so you now you're carrying that and like, yeah, why not try that? Like, why not say this? Why not ask? Like, because, you know, and I think that's one of those tools that you can bring back on how how you were raised and some of the other things. It becomes a real beneficial tool not just for yourself but those around you those that you're you're teaching the people that are reading your your books and and everybody around you your family your community so i i would say you know further from that how do you look at running your class like how do you create an environment and i don't want to limit to the just your just your class but how's your outlook as far as fostering an environment for people to think outside the box and to be creative is there an intention there from from where you set the foundation all right this is like this is a real talk this is a real talk podcast so i'm gonna be honest with you i don't know if i do that very well i one of the weaknesses that this background has well thinking they're not seeing fences leaves me with less understanding for how to explain to people that all the fences they see can be disapparated or seen through. And I have not yet found the right tools for that. And here's here's what I mean by that. Maybe four or five years ago, I six years ago more or more, I instituted a new like rule or whatever in a in, in a class of mine. And I said, you know what? I have a floating hijackable week. I have programming for nine out of 10 of our classes. And if you want that, if you think there's something missing from this class or there's something you want to add, then you come to me and we will, I will give the class to you. And this came from an experience I had, I was a photography major. And I remember once we were, we had this, these critiques in photography where you bring in, it's Thursday and you bring in your, the product of your assignment from the previous week, you put it up in the gallery, all the lights are on and the professor comes around and the professor goes, hmm, hmm. And it's kind of like, and says, oh, nice light or too, too much shadow. Right. And then, and you're just trembling because in, in retrospect, it's kind of silly. Who cares what this person thinks? But at the time, this is your grade and it's your art and it's your like, you know, ah. And so at one point when the professor had said to somebody, maybe it was me. Yeah. I don't know about this. I said, where's your work? Mm. And he turned to me and he said, I'll bring it in. And he brought it in and it wasn't great. And I, I learned such a phenomenal lesson about leadership, humility, about transparency. It, he was he was a professor, not a like an art gallerist or somebody who's selling his work. So he'd never positioned himself as like a better photographer than us. He positioned himself as a great educator. And I and then in the next semester, he offered to let me um, teach a teach like one of the units in his class. And I was just like a scrappy little teenager or whatever. And so I learned this super duper important lesson about, about who faculty are and how much they are actually in charge of. It's, it was, you know, I didn't see the fence. The fence was like, shut up, you know, shut up Fitzpatrick because Fitzpatrick at the time. Um, and so I took that kind of energy into my classes and I thought, wow, surely there are students in the class who are just dying to like kick me off and tell, and, and tell everybody what they think, just like I was in that class. 
And I have not found that to be the case. In fact, only one student over years actually did what I took, took me up on that offer and hijacked the class. Uh, I say hijacked, you know, like said here, I'm, I've got programming I want to add. I want the class to be about this topic. And so the reflection for me has been, what's the challenge there? Are students insufficiently um, sort of willing or interested or able to contribute? Or more likely, have I created the wrong on-ramps for students to, to sort of like take, take control in that space, if that makes sense? So that's one kind of like one answer. At a broader, that's just like very like transparent. I mean, I think you've had a lot of leaders listening to this. And that's my sort of like transparent, you know, kind of... Uh, anecdote about that at a more superficial level. And, you know, what I tell applicants of the program is we're always doing like workshopping things. We're doing case studies. We are always breaking out into discussions. I think if I've, I've, I will have talked at the end of this podcast more than I'll talk in any one of my classes. And so we're always breaking out students are, are talking or presenting to each other or watching a lecture before they come to class or the in class, we can do exercises. And so a lot of that means that there is it's sort of hands-on, peer-to-peer, what are you really interested in kinds of learning that's happening that's not just, you know, me at the front of the room talking about what I think. Going back to how you said, because there's a lot of things that you're bringing into that situation and how you lead your classroom and how you set the foundation, you've referenced before that your words, jack of all trades, net master none, and also being reflective, not, not to say I regret or anything, but knowing what you know now, when you were starting, is there anything that you wish you would have focused more attention on previously? And again, this is not a regret, like, oh man, I should have did this. But is it like, oh, you know what, really? Like, I'm really interested in this. And if I would have focused on that, maybe this would be a different outcome. Uh, yeah, so I think there's two things that come instantly to mind, and one of them is when I went to college, my parents were supportive, um, but not sort of. I mean, I have a kid, I have a kid applying to college right now, and the amount of like support and you know knowledge that we bring, or where we don't know something, we find somebody who knows something. The amount of attention that we're paying to this is is sort of significant. And my parents were like, we love you. We support you. We believe in you. Like, if you're going to go to college, you're going to do great. As opposed to, you know, really pushing me and, you know, helping me think about what my options were, et cetera. So I ended up going to a state school down the street from where I lived in Middle Tennessee. I went to Middle Tennessee State University, and I, which is where I had this, you know, photography professor I just told you about. And I, I was not badly served by that university. But it was the only university I applied to. And I regret that I did not, I don't regret the education I got there. I regret not trying my hand at down the road was Vanderbilt. Why didn't I apply to Vanderbilt, for example, in there, there in, in Tennessee? Uh, and I certainly wouldn't have thought of applying to places much further afield. And it was, you know, I was living in Russia at the time, different story. And this was in the 90s and, um, and came back to Tennessee and applied to the college that was down the street. And was not badly served. But in retrospect, I'm thinking, man, I wish I had like seen where else I could have gone, right? The second thing is in grad school, you have an opportunity to focus on a couple of different things. And I didn't focus on on research methods as much as I wish I had, which is basically like to this tools and techniques. It's a, there are a couple of really powerful tools in your toolbox that I didn't when I was in school and you just, that's all you're doing. I should have taken more classes that were just like how to use that tool really, really well. And so I don't know, like, you know, in, in real estate, there are people who are like really great at the interpersonal stuff. And then there are other folks who are also really great at the technical back end. I wish I'd invested in the technical back end of some of the stuff I do because I could be two or three times more productive in terms of volume if I actually knew some additional, some additional methods. So that's, yeah. those are two things. You know, apply to apply to more schools um, and also learn some more some more practical tools for how I do my job. Yeah. You know, taking taking those swings and, and for whatever reason that you didn't, you know, some that are top of mind, some that are more internal of like, well, maybe I, I just should have for whatever reason. Sometimes I think about the lessons that we're teaching the kids, um, you know, the, the the youth in our in our lives. And I oftentimes think about like. Well, what would what what would I be saying to myself about the decisions that I'm making 
today, right? When it comes to like taking a risk or, or writing writing the book the way you would, it's like, yeah, yes. We, I remember my son playing baseball and he kept getting on base because he kept walking because the pitches weren't going over the plate. So he kept getting on base, which is fine. But I'm like, swing the bat, man. <laughs> swing the bat. In the first couple of games, like he just wasn't swinging, but he was having success. But I'm like, listen, it's more fun if you actually swing the bat and get some hits. And mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. enough, he did. It started it went really well. But then I'm thinking like, where in our lives can we swing the bat? Like, where are we not taking that shot? And it sounds like from based on your experience and your current position that you're having more uh, freedom to swing the bat in what you're doing. Yeah, but that's a really good, this is appropriate for me too. I'm in a, I've now been, this is like a second career for me in some ways. So I've been doing this now for 10 years, being a professor. And I think I'm, I'm like, okay, do I want to write more books and teach more classes? And I'm, I'm thinking about going into leadership and trying to figure out what that, what that entails and whether or not I want to do it. And if so, what sort of opportunities I, w- I would like to have if I, you know, if I was honored to have a position, like what would that look like? And, and my wife, who's a COO is like, you gotta just like, like say yes to everything, swing, swing for everything. I'm just riffing off of this swing for, and her, sure. her like one liner is swing for everything. And not because you want everything, but because it keeps you in with this sense that you are, you know, on the move, making things happen. And I, and I think this is really important for me. I'm, a, I'm sort of, I'm hungry. I'm a hungry person and I don't ever want to feel like I don't have options and like I'm stuck and like I can't, um, yeah, I don't ever want to feel stuck. And so that for me is also really affirming because like if it, and if maybe the bat never connects, but it sure wasn't because we never swung, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something I'm now trying to figure out how to apply that lesson going from essentially in, in the institutional ecosystem that I work in, I'm a worker, I'm like talent. And I, and as I think about going to management or maybe leadership, um, the question is like, okay, what does that even look like? And again, that, you know, that message of they take, you know, guys make, make those swings, I think really resonates for me. Well, I, I had a conversation with a friend a couple of days ago and we were talking about that mental shift and those what ifs, because we're conditioned mm-hmm. in many ways for the what ifs to be negative and to, well, what if this, and what if this person does yeah. this? And what if that yeah. happens, you know, yeah. to the person's like, don't say that or you get fired. Like, cause what mm-hmm. if you say that and you get fired? Those are those what ifs. How do you turn that, 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 mental switch into the what if the back connects what if it what if it's better than you could have even imagined but you will never know if you don't if you don't try and i am it's something that i am uh immensely fascinated with and it's something that i i think about i talk about all the time it's just i'm so interested in that like how do you do that how do you make that switch okay so i'm going to talk for a minute or two and then i want to hear what you think if you've been thinking a lot about this i don't know and so and so one of the uh, one of the opportunities as you know as i mentor people is to listen to how other people experience um opportunities and how other people deal with failure or like the swing it swings and the misses and i get asked for advice by mentees about this and i don't know what to say very honestly because i have uh, I'm just kind of incorrigible and just just dispositionally I'm an optimist and then when you know when you you have a you have an exchange with a supervisor or a client or a peer or somebody and you're just like it didn't come out the right way either because the words were wrong or the words were right but the attitude is a little wrong and then and I will I will assess that situation and I and if it's necessary to apologize I'll apologize with no like ego or malice involved and then I move on. And if it's not an apology thing, it's just I need to get over it thing. I just like, I don't know, just put it in a box someplace or something. And I've had to now start articulating that to mentees who say, okay, great. So if I what, you know, if you're trying to this is just the what if. If the what ifs are what if the bat connects, then you take more swings. But then it's also going to increase your your swing and miss rate. So then what do you do with the swing and miss data? Because that all feels like something. And I just, I don't like stuff it down and it's going to erupt one day. I don't think I'm just like, look at it. And I'm like, I see you. Is there a lesson I can learn from this? 
And then I just put it out. I put it out of my mind. And this is a phrase in English. I put it out of my mind. But I don't actually know how to explain in detail how to do that to mentees who are asking, great, I love that for you. But how do I do it? Because I think at the end of the day, so so just really quickly, writing books and writing articles, or also academic articles, rejection happens all the time. For a book that gets published by one publisher, it will get rejected by a handful of others. And so, and I, I will bring to my students in class rejection letters. I'll give my mentees rejection letters that I've received. I will give them the markdown for a book, a book's people, you know, somebody says, oh, I really like that book. And I said, oh, let me show you the first four versions of it. And every single line has an editor marking something out. So my students don't freak out when they see that I said, maybe there's another way you could say this. And so something that some, there's got to be some way to exercise the skill, capacity, muscle, whatever metaphor you want for how to take that feedback and not dodge it. So we never learn from it, but instead to graphic, like catch it like a, like a fly ball in your bare hand and it stings. And then you look at it and you see what they're, and you write down the lesson for yourself on the post, on a post-it note or wherever it is you write down lessons for yourself. And then you throw it back into the field because it's not yours. And I don't know how we do that. Okay, I'm done talking. Sound like, sound, no, sound like you, you just told exactly how you do that. <laughs> but how? But 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 if we're but if we're if we're per, dispositionally more likely to take that ball and then to hoard it and hold it in, like to hold it in our arms, all the balls that have been like sort of a mixing metaphors here, but like all the balls, the fly balls that we've caught, that are the ones that are not, like not for us. There's a lesson for us, but the, a sting and a lesson. But if we collect all the balls and carry all of those around in our backpack, we like can't move around easily through the world. Yeah, I like I like what you're saying about you know catch it, learn from it, and then throw it back. Um, perhaps maybe it's not throw it back, but let it go. Um, yeah. You know, and again, yeah, this, this, this sounds like just words but there there's meaning behind that and the difference between attaching to something and embracing it and there's a difference in just you know how how your relationship with that thing is and i t- i can tell you from my experience like first of all from everyone's experience failure hurts <laughs> you know mm-hmm. getting rejected hurts i mm-hmm. i i would rank my failures up there with <laughs> I put them on a shelf and compare them with anybody. Like, hey, you want to want to count failures? Have a couple of drinks. They'll talk about how many, how much I failed. But it's like I also don't necessarily identify with them, and I think that's that's the practice. And I wish I, you yeah. know, I, I don't throw wish out there. And it's like I'm. It's fortunate, unfortunate that I have to deal with the amount of failures that I've had to. But actually, I like the person who I am. I like the people that I'm around, and it's just practicing failing you know it's like anything else it's just practice and i think to another you know you know tangential but meditation has really helped for me right because one of the things is letting go of you know when you the practice of meditation and you your mind is going and you start thinking about what the future or the past or whatever and becoming aware that you are thinking about those things and being able to not go oh my mind did it again but Oh, my mind did it again. Okay. That's what it does. And let go. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a, a bit of big help for me. I would say another thing is um, journaling, you know, once, especially maybe in an academic setting or you're writing publicly, you're doing these things and there's a format, there's a way to do it. When I journal, it, there's nobody, hopefully, or actually I really don't care reading my journal, but it's like I can write, I can take up the whole page, I can go over the margins. It doesn't matter. There are, to your point, not knowing where the edges are, there's no edges. Mm-hmm. And that for me has been a practice for life of just, you know, hey, this is your journal. This is your life. This is your journey. And, um, you know, may- maybe that gives me more. I don't, again, I don't know how much weight to put on each one of these things, but all these things help. I think all of them help. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I, I journal as well. And I talk with folks. And I feel like and it's usually in talking with folks, for example, that I'm able to get some additional clarity on what a situation or an exchange meant, or what the larger lesson might be. And, you know, and that all that really helps. I, I, I co-sign what you just said. I agree mm-hmm. entirely. 
But one thing that I would say that I learned a lot and I learned the hard way, I did outside sales in early in my career. And man, you want to talk about failure? Like I wasn't the best salesman, um, never, you know, it, it was, it was pretty bad. And I was often working in, uh, in Temecula, California and those type of areas like North County where often t- it's not uncommon that it's going to be over 110 degrees. So having people shut the door in your face and say, beat it kid, <laughs> but it's 110 degrees. It's like not the best. And I, I understand these are, these are first world problems. Like there's people that deal with much more, but man, it still hurts. It still hurts and it's hard. But I mean, going back to what we were talking about originally resiliency, like, like where, where is it like, okay, I'm happy that I'm built building this resilience, but also like, yeah, this isn't for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to do something mm-hmm. else. This ain't it. Yes. And I think that we get experience. Yeah. So I, the question in my mind is how to front load some of these tools for people so that when we tell them swings and misses are okay, they have the tools to, 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 to manage that. Right. And so maybe it's journaling, journaling, meditation, talking to, uh, talking to mentors. I love it because that's the conversation we're in right now is how do you, like, what are some of the, what are the takeaways from folks who have, um, you know, taking risks. And one of them is you've got to have a, you've got to have a backstop when things don't work out. And that's some, you know, we think of that as being financial, but it's also egoic or, in, or, or it's about our, our brains and our minds and our hearts, you know, like, what do we do with that? Because if it turns out that we, we feel like failures, which I, I, I fear is oftentimes what people feel the consequence of having tried and not succeeded is that's not, it's something related to failure. And I feel like, I mean, I teach, you know, I, I, run a social innovation program here at the university. And so much of what we try to model for folks and then train folks in explicitly is how to like how, how to fail fast, how to fail forward, how to, you know, essentially, essentially having a like limbering up the ego and loosening up the mind so that we can play at a sufficient rate that what we're doing is generative and playful. And then later we sort things out and see what's useful as opposed to try fail, rinse, repeat. And insofar as we can create sandboxes or whatever metaphor we want to have for that kind of work, it gets the brain, I, I must say limbered up, make some metaphors here for for this kind of work so that we're more likely to be able to do it again in the future without the alarm bells going off in our egos or in our self-protection mechanism saying, danger, danger, remember the last time you did this. And then that, then somebody turns to another faculty member in a meeting and says, don't say that you might get let go. Right. And, and the question is, how do we, uh, for ourselves, practice that kind of, not confidence, but that kind of, I keep using the term limber because it's not about whether or not it's successful. It's whether or not the failures break us. I think that really matters. Well, I think also the what you you talked about before and alluded to is that the the reframing, the restructuring of those things, and how to go about doing that. And maybe it is journaling and uh, you know reflecting upon different experiences and putting names to them, putting things and and I don't know, loving your failures. I don't know, not loving, liking, but putting them in the right frame of reference. For to to your point, you know, it's not this this you know barbed wired mace something you know it's not it's not it's not that it's like how do you reframe this and and look at this but i think a lot of it comes to like all the all those tools writing it down sharing it with other people exploring it and and i think when you talked about that you know looking at the ball and 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 looking at it and experiencing it i think that's that's probably the key right there being aware of it and then experiencing it i think doing this stuff with other people too just as i'm listening to you, I think that doing this with others, where it's not just you, but there's a, a nor, like norms around or expectations around that we're doing this sort of thing together. I'm part of a part of an artist collective here in San Diego, and the fact is that when things don't work, we're all doing it together. And what ends up happening is, you know, something not working means that our team got to spend time together in a particular way that at the end of the day, didn't turn into a final project or did, wasn't a direction we're going to end up going. But since that's not the only objective, the objective is, is also like building community and building relationship because we're like, we're a collective, then that, and then we end up having like perhaps a very successful 
kind of you know sort of experience when it comes to the team collaborating and creating together even if the prototype that we stood up for an art project for example doesn't actually end up ever seeing the light of day and so i think doing this stuff with trusted other people in a way where we create new norms about what it means to to be to be experimental i think that probably matters matters as well so i know we we want to be mindful of time here and um in the in the because you mentioned the art artist collective that you're a part of, uh, I want to make sure to give you some time to talk about that because I know that's that's a pretty cool thing that you're doing and it has a, plays a big role in in your life. Could you talk about how you got involved with this group? Yeah, so this was a this is a group of faculty members at the University of San Diego who had been who built an art piece and taken it to Burning Man in 2018, and I heard about it, thought it was really cool, so I came alongside the next project and that project was um, sort of big and expensive and complicated. And it led us to start a nonprofit to sort of manage the money. And so now we have a a 501c3 called Art Builds. And it's four of us faculty members who are sort of the nonprofit uh, sort of principals. But then it's a rolling gang of colleagues, primarily from the West Coast, who come alongside our design pro- the design process also the build process and then we've you know we've built art for for the county of San Diego we've built art for uh, had it installed at like maker fairs and burning man and and other sort of desert you know this is big art big structures that can't really fit into galleries and so we go we find uh places where we can exhibit out in open space which tends to be here in California in the desert so we'll, we build like big art and then take it to the desert basically and that has been a lot of fun because as somebody who's interested in social movements and how new ideas make their way into the world and how people collaborate, that's gotten me thinking about how is it that people work together across big differences to collaborate on creating new stuff that goes out into the world, which is kind of interesting. You know, I'm pointing at the books behind me, but it's interesting to me as an intellectual puzzle. And it's a whole lot of fun from a building and installing art in the desert perspective. And that's actually the new book that I was just describing earlier. It's a book on uh, art as collective action, on what it means when people get together to build stuff and put their egos to the side and move the ideas to the front and center. And what does that look like? Because when we think of artists, we tend to think of, you know, we think of Picasso, we think of like single names. We don't tend to think of collectives. And there's all sorts of reasons for that that I won't go into, but what happens if we increasingly think of art and creativity as an opportunity to play with others? interpersonally as we are in this group or collectively in this group, but also I think this applies to AI. We increasingly have other minds to bounce ideas off of, and we should be as a wonderful opportunity for this to get a, cause a real shakeup among established artists whose lives and livelihoods this disrupts. And that's its own real complicated puzzle we should pay attention to. But ever the optimist, I'm asking how is it this creates new on-ramps for creativity from folks who maybe have got that potential, but nobody to really talk to or play around with when it comes to ideas and prototypes, et cetera. But, you know, you take a, a, a smart, a smart AI and a 3d printer and that's some capital and it's a first world sort of, sort of investment, but what, a lot of more people are going to be invited into an on-ramp of creativity and design and playing with others. And in this case, I'm thinking of other minds like AI. So some of this is like, you know, some of this is like hippie collective building art in the desert. And some of this is also a bit high tech, you know, you don't have to leave your house to be really playing with others. But in this case, it might be artificial intelligence. And I think that says a lot about what collaboration might look like moving into the future. So anyway, new project. Well, I I think as, as you mentioned, what people's idea of what art is and the way I tend to think about this all, like we're, we're all artists we all have something in us that we're trying to express whatever medium or whatever tool that you use to express it really comes down to what you like or your proficiency or what you're good at. Like some people use a paintbrush, some people use a pencil, some people use a guitar, some people use sports, you know, there's some, some people use, the you know, the pen there's, there's so many different things. And I think one of the things it's amazing to see that you have it when you, especially when you do it as a group, there's something, there's something extra special there, us as mm-hmm. social beings. Um, but that's one of the things that I try to impress upon, you know, my kids, like you need to find something that you enjoy and you enjoy doing and that you can use that thing as your, as your brush to express yourself. Mm-hmm. Otherwise mm-hmm. that thing, that thing dies, you know, you got to express agree. it. I agree. Express it. 100%. 100%. Austin, 
Austin, thank you so much for your time today. Before before we leave, is there one? Is there anything else that you want to share? And hopefully, this we'll have we'll have a round two of this. But I want to make sure I give you space to share any parting parting words. Oh, I, w- I should have had some parting wisdom like posted here on my uh, on my my wall. Um, creativity, collaboration, convergence, and joy. That's actually on my post-it note. I had no parting notes, but this is on my post-it note here. Creativity, collaboration, convergence, and joy to follow up on that last conversation. How is it we can bring more of that into the world? Working with other people uh, across big differences to make beautiful stuff um, that makes the world a better place. How can we do that? I want to stand close to that stuff. I love it. Austin, thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Tools, Talents, and Techniques. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did find value in the episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite platform, leaving a review, and sharing with your network. We have an amazing lineup in the coming weeks and months with some very impressive leaders and some of the heaviest hitters in business who are making a positive impact in the world. So stay tuned for more exciting episodes and special features coming up. We appreciate your ongoing support and look forward to welcoming you back next time on Tools, Talents, and Techniques.